Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 22. Luke chapter 22, as we continue our journey through the book of Luke. Here now in the last week of Jesus' life. There are those who will question the, the truthfulness or the reliability of the Bible. People who would say that that the Gospels don't give us an accurate picture of who Jesus was or who the disciples were or what happened with the early church. There are people who say that these things are made up, um, that they are exaggerated, or that they are incorrect. But one of the great arguments in favor of the truthfulness and the reliability of the Bible and of the Gospels in particular is how they show so clearly both the triumphs and the failures of the followers of Jesus, the disciples in particular. In fact, it would seem that the Gospels, for the most part, help us to see the lack of faith that the disciples had, rather than how strong they were as followers of Christ. The argument then goes that if if things were being made up, and if the disciples were trying to create some sort of religion or get followers behind them, if that was the case, then they would probably paint themselves in a very positive light. They would highlight all of their successes, the times that they did well, and they would minimize all of their failures. If you know the word, it would be more hagiography, where we we make everything look beautiful, than it would actually be honesty. But that is not what we find at all. And here in Luke, we find one of Jesus's most outspoken followers at the low point of his life. And it's not brushed over, it's not, it's not taken out of Scripture, but it is highlighted, it is predicted by Jesus, and it is told in painstaking detail exactly how it happened. We know even it's included in the book of Mark. And historically what we know is that the, the apostle, the disciple behind the book of Mark was Peter himself. And Peter didn't say to Mark, who is recording these things down, let's not put in the part when I deny Jesus. But it's there, and it's there for us. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that the Bible shows us that the followers of Jesus had feet of clay, that that they were weak people who failed and who were faithless. I, I, I'm so thankful that Abraham was not perfectly faithful, but that he grew in faith. We see that with all of the Old Testament saints, and we see that with the disciples here. I'm not rejoicing at their failures, but I am, I'm appreciate their, their humanity. Because I need that. Because I, I'm so weak. I mean, I, I've failed this week. I, I haven't been completely faithful to Jesus this week. And neither have you. I know you haven't. And if you think you have, you're wrong. And we're we're so much like Peter, and we need Peter. I, I think it can be frustrating when people all they do is give success stories. All all you hear is about the ways that that they have um, they've everything have always worked out for them. That their principles for successful living have always been perfect. When someone has an invention, they say this is what I came up with, and you don't realize that they failed a million times before that before they were successful. I need that. I need to know that your life is not what you portray on Facebook. You know, <laughs> I, I need you to know that, that I can show you pictures of my children smiling on vacation and, and that I could also tell you exactly what we looked at 
three seconds before that picture was taken and how we're trying to get everyone in order and how I probably lost my temper at some point. I need that. You know, if all I knew about Peter was him preaching at Pentecost boldly or making the good confession before Christ, he would probably be a little bit more unreal to me. But I think what we all love about Peter is that we watch him fall, we watch him fail, and then we know that he's just like us. I can see his heartache and I can feel my heartache. Because I am faithless. I see him in me. And when we do that, we can learn. Once we see that Peter is us, we can learn from his failures. And then, when we watch him rise from the ashes of denial and stand at Pentecost and preach the gospel boldly, we can say, wow, there's hope for me too. That maybe Christ can use even a faithless person like me. Let's look at Luke 22. This totally honest picture of our brother in Christ, Peter. It says in Luke 22, beginning in verse 54, And they, these are the people who had come to the garden to arrest Jesus. It says, And they seized him, seized Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also is with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, we first met Peter back in Luke chapter 5. I don't know if you remember that. Some of you weren't even with us way back then. <laughs> Jesus had just begun his, his public ministry. And, and while he's teaching on the shores of Galilee, the crowd starts to, to crowd in around him and press in on him. And the beach becomes smaller and, and smaller. And so Jesus, in order to accommodate the crowd, gets into a boat that was there from some nearby fishermen. And he asks them to put it a, a bit away from the shore so that he can continue to teach from the boat. Isn't that a, a neat picture to think about? And it was Peter's boat that Jesus stepped into. Isn't that neat? He steps into Peter's boat, and in stepping into that boat, he steps into Peter's life, and he completely changes this man. When he had finished teaching, Jesus said to Simon Peter, hey, let's put the boat out into some deeper waters, and you can cast your nets out for a catch. And Peter, true to form, questions this. Uh, he says, we worked all night. We didn't catch a thing, but you told me to, so I'll do it. So he heads out. They throw the nets out. They go to bring them in, and the nets are so full of fish that they begin to break. They have to call their buddies with another boat to come over and help them with this load of fish. And in the midst of all these fish in the middle of the boat, Peter falls to his knees before Jesus and says, get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful 
man. He sees who Christ is and he sees who he is. And it tells us in verse 11 that he, along with James and John, who were with him and who were also fishermen, left everything and followed Jesus. They left everything. Peter left his father. He left his boat. He left all those fish (laughs) that he had just caught. Left everything and he followed Jesus. You know, I love Peter for that, don't you? That he left it all for Christ. There's one chapter later in Luke 6, Jesus calls the 12 to be with him. Calls the 12 who are his his closest followers. There were other disciples, but there were only 12 apostles, and, and Peter was one of them. In fact, it seems he's listed first every time they are listed, and it seems that he is almost the unofficial leader. He may have been the oldest of the disciples, and very often he is the spokesman for the group, despite how often he puts his foot into his mouth. Uh, but often he gets it right, doesn't he? And when Jesus asks his followers in Luke chapter 9, who do you guys say that I am? What does Jesus? What does Peter say? He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. Man, he gets it right on the nose. He's not just a disciple, though. Peter, along with James and John, were part of the inner circle of the twelve that were even closer to Jesus. These three were chosen to be with Jesus in unique circumstances. We find in Luke 8 that, that they are invited to come in with Jesus into the, the room of a synagogue ruler's daughter who had, had just died. And these three are there with Jesus and with the girl's parents when Jesus takes her by the hand and says, Child, get up. She rises from the dead. Peter was there. He was in that room. He saw that. He heard those words. They were with Jesus, these three, Peter, James, and John, on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was speaking with Moses and Elijah about his coming departure, about his his exodus, he heard the voice of the Father on the mountain say, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. It was still in his brain. Because in 2 Peter, years and years later, Peter writes this, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for when he received honor and glory from god the father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain peter was there peter as he says in the passage was an eyewitness of the majesty of jesus he had seen the power of jesus to heal. He had seen the glory of Jesus, as it were, shining right out of him. Peter's devotion to Jesus was complete. He was willing to leave everything. He was, he was willing to die for Jesus. We saw last week he was willing to fight for Jesus. Peter's the one that pulls the sword out and swings it in the garden and hits the, the servant's ear. He was ready for war. You know, I don't think Peter was aiming for the ear. I don't know that he was a bad swordsman or the man just moved fast enough. But he was ready to fight. What a gift of God's grace that all he hit was the ear, isn't it? I think that was God's compassion to Peter and to that man. I say all of this to remind us that that Peter is not some semi-committed follower of Jesus. He's not on on the outskirts. He hasn't just joined this crew on a whim. He's not one of the disciples that walked away in John 6 when Jesus gave a a hard teaching. Peter's the one that said, where else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Peter was with Jesus. He was no fool. He wasn't confused. He wasn't uncommitted. 
So when Jesus says that Peter is going to deny him, that Peter is going to publicly say that he has no idea who Jesus is, and that he's going to do it three times, and he's going to do it before the morning comes, that is shocking. It was shocking to the other disciples who looked up to Peter probably. It was shocking to Peter. Probably not as shocking as it should be. He says, no way, Lord, not me. And we know the story well, but this should be shocking to us. That Peter would fall. It should be shocking. It should be sobering. It should cause us to pause and say, what about me? We should realize, friends, that that none of us, not one of us, is beyond falling and failing and denying Jesus. Every single one of us. Think you're stronger than Peter? Think you're more committed than Peter? Verse 54 tells us that, that Jesus was seized. He was taken to the high priest's house. And it says that Peter followed him. We know from the book of John that someone else followed, another disciple, and we presume that that was probably John. And the reason actually that Peter is allowed into the courtyard is because John has some connections at that house, and so he's allowed in. You can picture, as it were, them leaving um, the Mount of Olives. You remember that's that's east of Jerusalem, and so they would have to come down into the Kidron Valley and then through the east gate into the city of Jerusalem. And so you can see this group taking Jesus away, maybe John and Peter sneaking through the night, following them, finding out where exactly they are going, entering into this house in the cover of night. And while we know the end result, you got to give Peter some credit here, right? He followed. He went with Jesus. Everyone else scattered. He didn't flee. He followed. But, you know, in following, he's putting himself into a very difficult, a very tempting situation. He's there in the courtyard, and it says that he sat down among them. Who's the them? It's got to include those that had actually just arrested Jesus. Those who were there when Peter cut off the servants here and he's now gathered around a fire with them and with with others he'd been hidden by the darkness in the garden but now there's a fire going and it's exposing peter and he's going to sit through probably the hardest trial of his entire life i think as we look at this scene as we look at the context that that one of the lessons we need to learn if we tie it back to jesus in the garden is that to neglect prayer is to negate power. I say it that way, so hopefully it's memorable, but to neglect prayer is to negate power. In other words, if we don't pray, we have no power in the midst of difficult circumstances. Jesus told his disciples, you remember, and he told the inner three in particular, pray, guys, pray that you won't enter into temptation. He told it to them twice, and what did they do? They slept. We're reminded again of Peter's bold statement that he would never deny Christ. That so much of that was bravado, so much of that was less about faith and more about self-confidence. He should have prayed. You know, in temptation, we, we have to pray. Sometimes we just try to get out of temptation as fast as we can with our own devices rather than praying. We can't stand on our own, though. We need the power of God that's available to us in prayer. And, and not just in the midst of temptation. We need to pray before temptation. What does Jesus tell us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. When was the last time we prayed that in the morning? God, lead me not into 
temptation. God, keep me from things and from situations and from people and from places and from websites and from conversations that are going to cause me to sin. They're going to cause me to fall and to fail. We pray beforehand and then in the midst of it, we, we again, the Lord's Prayer, what's he say? Deliver us from evil. In the midst of it, we say, God, deliver me from this. When those situations inevitably come, God, rescue me out of them. We pray before temptation hits. We pray when we are caught in the midst of it. I remember hearing a guy on the radio preaching one time, and I have totally forgotten who it was at this point in my life. But I remember him saying to wake up in the morning and to not pray is to essentially say, I don't need you today, God. I'll be fine on my own. Isn't that what we often do? We start the day and we don't seek the help of God. It's a dangerous place to be, but it's where we often find ourselves. And we can't just rely on our own prayers. Remember, who's praying for Peter? That he won't be sifted like wheat. Jesus is praying for Peter. Jesus is praying for us. We need the prayers of others as well. We need to seek out the prayers of others. When you're entering into a tempting situation, when you know something's going to be difficult, it's going to try your patience, it's going to work on your sinful desires. Do you ask people to pray for you? I'm heading into this situation and I know it's going to be hard. I know I'm going to be tempted to sin. Will you pray for me? You know, when you might be prone to deny Jesus before others, whether through your mouth or through sinful actions, do you seek the prayers of others? You know, one of the beauties of our connected age is that we can call on anyone at any time in a thousand different ways. In an instant. Friday morning I sat down to write out the manuscript to this. I, I just felt assaulted. I felt tempted. I felt drawn away in my heart and in my mind. So I texted my good friend Nate. I said, Nate, would you pray for me? Because I, I don't know what's going on, but this is how I feel. And this, there was power. I don't think Nate prayed when he, right when he got that. He didn't get it until an hour later. But there was power in confessing that to God. Say, God, deliver me. Asking for help. And knowing that someone's going to call and talk to me. There is power in that. I encourage you to, to take advantage of those things. Do you pray before temptation comes? Do you recognize tempting situations and ask for prayer? Do you have people that you can call out to for prayer? That's, that's part of the purpose of the church, isn't it? Part of the reason we need to know each other's phone numbers and be able to text one another and call one another and get on Facebook or whatever it might be and seek for help. And know this, don't, don't ever think that, that myself, or that Joel, as your elders, that were ever too busy for you to call and say, would you pray for me? I think sometimes, you know, I've got five kids, and, and we've got a lot going on, but that's what we are here for. And I know Joel would say the same thing. So don't ever think we're too busy to pray with or to pray for you. That's why we're here. Well, we look at this threefold denial of Peter, and, and I just want to try to ask why. What's going on in Peter's heart and mind that causes him to deny Christ? And, and how can we see that in ourselves and learn from his mistakes? You, you, the scene is set here and you can sort of see the firelight that's flickering off of Peter's face. And there's this servant girl that sees Peter's face as well and sort of stares at him for a while. She looks closely at him, the text tells us, and then she points at Peter as it were. And she tells everyone that's gathered there, she says, this guy was with him. This guy right here was, was with Jesus in the garden. And Peter denies that. He says it's not true. He lies. He says, woman, I don't know him. Have you ever had someone say that about you? 
Or have you ever said that about someone else? I have no idea who that is. Sometimes we've done that sarcastically. I'm not related to them. I don't know who they are. You know. But can you imagine Peter saying that? Why did, why did Peter deny Christ in front of this, this little servant girl? I think fear would be one factor that we would put in here, isn't it? Why did he deny? Let's just say fear. If Peter is associated with Jesus in this moment, in this place, what could happen to him? Not only that, what if he is identified as the guy with the sword? What's going to happen to him? He could be put on trial as well. He could be put to death as well. He could be called as a witness against Jesus. And if he doesn't cooperate, something terrible could happen to him. He's afraid. So too with us, fear can cause us to deny Christ, can't it? Fear of the consequences of standing up for Jesus. Maybe it's going to affect our job. Maybe it's going to affect our our standing with our friends. Maybe it's going to affect something that has to do with our family and how we relate. There's so many things. And certainly when we look at the world at large, those who face persecution, those who face death for name in the name of Christ, fear is certainly a reason that people would be tempted to deny Christ. Keep us from confessing Jesus before others. But we need to pray for our brothers and sisters, don't we? People who are in much harder situations than we are, who if they say that they are a Christian, will be thrown in jail. Pastors who are gathering people together, and they know that they could be thrown out, and thrown in jail, or killed. Fear could cause us to deny Christ. But we're reminded that we are not supposed to fear men and women, but who are we supposed to fear? We're supposed to fear God. We don't fear those who can just kill us. (laughs) Who cares? We fear the one who can cast soul and body into hell. We fear the one who could condemn our souls. He's the one we must answer to. We fear God alone. Fear is a factor. Not too much later, Peter is there and someone else says to him, hey, you're one of them. You're one of those followers of Jesus. You're a disciple of his. Think about it. This is how how Peter has identified himself for the past three years. He's a disciple. That's who I am. Peter, a disciple of Christ. He's not just a fisherman anymore. What does Jesus say he is? He's a fisher of men. He's the one who goes out and gets men for Christ. He's a follower of Jesus. And yet in this moment, Peter separates himself from Jesus. He says, I don't want to be associated. I don't want to be considered a follower of Jesus. I think there's shame here. I think that's another factor. I think he's ashamed. You know, we might think of family name. I'm a Sabaka. That's my last name. That's part of the core of my identity. So if someone says to you, hey, are you a Sabaka? And I say, no. <laughs> then I'm, I'm denying something that's at the core of whom I am. I'm denying my family heritage. I'm announcing that I am ashamed of my family. Some people do change their names because their family has done something terrible. Their ancestors have done something and they don't want to be associated with that. I don't have teenagers yet, but I'm sure someday they will, out of shame, want to deny me. I was listening to something on the radio and they did a poll and they said that the number one thing that that kids are ashamed of about their father is their dancing. (laughs) And I thought, my kids, I think I would be ashamed if I was dancing. My kids certainly would, but they would say, I don't know who that guy is. That's not my dad. (laughs) 
the shame that comes. So along with fear, the, the shame and Peter's denial of Christ, what's going on with Jesus? Where's he at? What's, he, what's happening to him? He's being tried as a criminal. He's soon, he's going to be lifted up on a cross, which is as a sign of cursing in that culture. And Peter doesn't want to be associated with that. Do I want to be connected to that? The shame. What about us? Are you ever ashamed of Jesus? Ashamed of what he stands for? In a world that says there are many ways to God, are we ashamed that Jesus says he's the only way? In a society that says love should conquer all, are we ashamed that God is perfect in love, but he's also perfect in judgment? Perfect in wrath? Are we ashamed that by faith we believe in an unseen spiritual world? Or we believe in the resurrection of the dead? Or, or we believe in miraculous events? Or we believe in the reality of heaven and hell? That could be something that people would shame us for. So why would you believe that? If we want to be accepted in society, then standing with Jesus is going to be problematic for us. We'll find ourselves acknowledging Jesus with those who love him, but we will deny him before those who hate him. You know, maybe your shame has little to do with what Jesus actually teaches. Maybe it's just sort of the cool factor. You know, at, at work, at school, it's not cool to be a Christian. Being a Christian is lame. And so you say, ah, I'll be a Christian when I'm at church. When I'm in these other situations, I won't talk about it. Or maybe you're a new Christian. Maybe you've recommitted to Christ. And your old friends, they're mocking you. They see your efforts at trying to do what's right, at trying to walk in holiness, and they make fun of you. you know, that old Holy Joe thing. They shame you. And, and if you are feel that shame, you might buckle under the pressure, just like Peter. You might go along with those sins and announce to them, I'm not a follower of Jesus because of the things that I do. It's tough, isn't it? Maybe we're ashamed to bear the name Christian. You know, there are times when Christians do some really foolish things. <laughs> times when I don't want to be associated with people who name the name of Christ. Times when the church doesn't look much like the people of God. Times when it's right to actually be ashamed of the way that some people who say they are Christians act. So we need to fight. We need to fight to show the world what it truly looks like to follow Jesus. And can I give you one pet peeve? Don't listen to these emails and Facebook posts that say if you don't send this on or you don't put this on your wall that you're ashamed of Jesus. That's bogus. Especially the stuff that says, and if you do it, then he'll answer your ten prayer requests. Don't listen to that stuff. I think you should be ashamed to post some of those things. I would be ashamed to pass some of that on. So don't listen to that. That has nothing to do with whether or not you're ashamed of Christ. Some of that is an affront to people, and it's ugly to others. We want to be a good witness. Sometimes it's better to not send some of that stuff, especially if it has some sort of strange theology attached to it. So I just want to give you freedom. If, if that bears down on you, I release you from that. You don't have to feel shame for not sending those things on. So fear, shame. There's a third time Peter's associated with Jesus. It's an hour later. So this is quite the ordeal. Peter sticks around. This time it's because he's a Galilean. He's got an accent. 
and they come and they say, you're, you were with him. And Peter says, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I think the fear and the shame ultimately come down to the idea that Peter denies Christ because he loves himself and he loves his life more than he loves Christ. It's selfishness and desire for self-preservation. That's what keeps him from acknowledging Jesus. It's pride. The same is true for us, isn't it? Pride and love for self will always work against humility and love for Christ. They will keep us from acknowledging Jesus before others. I think it's ironic that the same thing that probably made Peter say he would never deny Jesus, and the same thing that made him step into that courtyard, is the same thing that made him deny Christ, and it was his pride and his self-confidence. He said, I will never deny you, Jesus, out of pride and self-confidence. He walked into that courtyard out of pride and self-confidence. And then when they asked him if he was associated with Jesus, he said no, because he was filled with pride and self-confidence. But in the moments that followed, all of his pride, all of his self-confidence melted away. He says those words, I don't know what you are talking about. And as he is saying them, the rooster crows. It's with that sound that's ringing in his ears that Peter then turns. And Luke is the only one that tells us this. But Peter turns and looks and he locks eyes with Jesus. Can you imagine that moment for Peter? And all of that happens, as it were, in an instant. He speaks the word. The rooster crows. He looks at Jesus and he remembers. He remembers that this is what Christ said was going to happen. He's overcome with grief. I'm just struck even in saying that. Isn't it interesting that we can know the sins that we might fall in? Peter knew that this was a potential. He knew, and yet he still fell. And in that he's overcome with grief. He runs out of the courtyard, and he weeps bitterly. I think, I could be wrong, I think that up to this point, Peter didn't see his sinfulness. I don't think Peter saw his selfishness or his pride, I think like all of us, he rationalized his sin in the midst of this. He was convinced that he had no choice but deny Jesus. But then when he saw Christ, everything came into focus. He was back on the deck of that boat, wasn't he? Chapter 5, he's on his knees. I'm a sinful man. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced when Jesus exposes your sin? Has he ever allowed things that you have kept in the dark to come to the light? And then your stomach drops. You realize, I was fooling myself. I thought I was just doing what I had to do. And I realize I'm, I'm denying Christ. I, and when that happens, we weep bitterly. It's painful, isn't it? But isn't that grace? Isn't that mercy? That, that Jesus looks at Peter and doesn't let him sit in his sin and think it's okay that what he's doing. Jesus doesn't allow us to remain in our sin. He will expose our sin. I have heard some amazing stories of things where people have covered their tracks extremely well. And suddenly it comes to the light in some unique way. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you will reap. There will be a day, if not in this life, in the life to come, when everything is brought to light. 
You know, we all have, and we all will, deny Christ. Whether in the privacy of our own hearts, when we choose sin, rather than choosing to to drink from the fountain that is Christ, or in public, when we keep our mouths shut, or when we outright deny that we are followers of Jesus, all of us have been and will be just like Peter. We are fearful. We are ashamed of Christ. We are selfish. What's the opposite of denial? I think it's confession. The opposite of denying Christ before others is to confess him before others. To stand and to say, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a disciple. I am a Christian. It's to proclaim the gospel boldly. It's it's to fear God rather than men. It's to join with Paul and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's, it's the power of God to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of that. It's to recognize our own weakness and inability to stand and to trust that God will cause us to stand in difficult situations. It's actually to be like Peter. Not like Peter and Luke. Okay but like Peter in the book of Acts, when after he had fallen from grace in this denial, and that beautiful scene, I encourage you, if you want something to read this afternoon, read John 21 and be encouraged as Jesus restores Peter. He denied him three times, and three times Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to say, I love you, Jesus. And he says it. And then on the day of Pentecost, he stands up filled with the Holy Spirit before this crowd, and he says, Jesus was the Messiah, and you guys killed him. That's a bold statement right there for him to confess Christ in that way, and he does it. He calls people to repent and to believe. And then not much later, he's arrested, and he's told, you're not allowed to talk about Jesus anymore. And what's he say? You guys can decide whether it's right for me to listen to you or to listen to God. But I'm going to keep talking about Jesus. Is this the same Peter? Is this the same guy? went to the depths and God brought him out of it. I think this idea of confessing Christ, this is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. If you've ever learned the, the Romans road, Romans 10, 9 and 10 is in that, isn't it? It says this in Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Maybe you've heard of the ABCs of salvation. I was always confused by those. The the A stands for admit. To admit our sin. Admit that we have failed. Admit that, that the wages of sin is death. Admit that all we like sheep have gone astray. Admit that there is none righteous. No one. We admit. We repent. We turn from sin. The B is is to believe. To believe who Jesus is. To believe that that Christ has come to pay the penalty for my sin and to give me his righteousness. To to believe that Jesus died and rose again on the third day. That's repentance and, and, and faith, belief. And you know what the C is? Confess. I was always so confused. I thought I, thought I already did that with admitting my sin. Because <laughs> confession can have, have to do with confessing our sins. But what does the confess mean? It means to confess Christ. To say, I am a follower of Jesus. There's something about that. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. To say it with your mouth. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. I think there's a good thing about the practice when someone becomes a Christian of saying, you need to go tell someone. 
need to proclaim that. And isn't this what baptism is? Baptism is a confession that I believe who Jesus is. I believe that I have died with Christ and been raised up in him, and I am proclaiming it to the world. Baptism is not to be done in some dark corner somewhere with just you and someone else. Baptism is to be done in the light, maybe outside with as many people as you can get around to say, I am not the person I was before. I am someone different. I am following Christ. And it's to confess him before others. Have you ever done that? Have you ever admitted your sin? Put your faith in Christ and confessed him before others? That's what salvation is. I encourage you. If you haven't done that, talk to someone. You've been baptized. Baptism doesn't save you. But baptism is a bold proclamation to everyone and to anyone that I have found my life in Christ. I'm not the person I was before. Let us all be confessing Christ always, right? We would not be ashamed. I've had a song in my head this week. Part of it goes like this. Oh, my soul. It's kind of a lament song. Oh, my Jesus. Judas sold you for 30. I'd have done it for less. Oh, my soul, oh, my Savior, Peter denied you three times. I have denied you more. Isn't that true? For honest as followers of Jesus, we know that we are often just like Peter. We neglect to pray. We are filled with fear. We are filled with shame. We love ourselves more than we love Christ. But Jesus looks at us. And in this moment, through his word, he looks at us and he opens our eyes to see our sin. Maybe just say, Holy Spirit, help me see my sin. Search me, O God. He looks at us, but he doesn't look with condemnation, does he? I don't think he looked at Peter and pointed a finger. I think he looked with kindness, with with compassion. Psalm 103.14 says, he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God knows us. He looks at Peter, he sees him, and maybe even hears his denial. And Jesus doesn't say, forget these guys. You know, they all forsook me. I'm here on trial. And I could call the angels and they could save me right now. I don't have to do all this. He goes to the cross, gives his life for us. And so in a sense, as we look at the Lord's table today, I want us to think about it in terms of that we are looking at Jesus, that we are considering his broken body, we're considering his shed blood. We are to grieve for our sin. We are to weep bitterly because of the way that we have offended Christ. When we take the bread, we realize his body was broken for us. When we take the cup, we realize that it took Jesus shedding his blood to pay for our sins. It was our sin. He had none. He took it on himself and he bore it for us. We are to look at our sin, and then we are to look at Christ. We are to be driven to him for salvation. You know, and Jesus says, as you keep taking this meal, what are we doing? We are proclaiming him until he comes. Taking this meal is confessing Christ. It is saying, my life is in Jesus. I have no hope of salvation apart from the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. I don't trust in anything else. It's confessing Christ. We are confessing that he is our only hope of salvation.